the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 351 for Tuesday, September 6th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips, you send in cool stuff found. We share all that with the audience. We try to provide some answers. And together, we learn something new about the Mac and other Apple products. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Hi, John F. Braun. How are you doing today? Great. How are you, Dave Hamilton? <laughs> I'm good. I'm glad to be uh, back kind of in our semi-normal routine. I know today's not Monday. We took yesterday off and shifted it today because of Labor Day here in the U.S., but uh, last week, we even skipped our, our regular show entirely because of the power outage and the storm and all that. So I'm glad to be back in a semi-normal routine. It's good. Anything to uh, to report on here for us, John? Not really. Let's let's get down to it. All right. You know, I'm going to talk about our new sponsor. Uh, no, it's not. Sorry. It's not a new sponsor. It's uh, it's our first sponsor for the show. And it is Smile at SmileSoftware.com. This month, we get to talk about PDF Pen, which I love because I use PDF Pen constantly. Uh, PDF Pen 5.5 is out now. Now, in a general sense, PDF Pen is a piece of software that allows you to... Uh, and for those of you that that have listened before and sometimes skip through these commercials uh, or these advertisements, sponsorship spots, don't because there's a discount code available for PDF Pen that I'm going to tell you about in a minute. Uh, but P- what PDF pen does is it allows you to manipulate, edit, add stuff to subtract stuff from, and even sometimes edit the text within PDF files. Uh, these are, these can be PDF files that you create or PDF files that, uh, that you've gotten from someone else. I talk about how I constantly use PDF pen to add my signature to contracts that come in. So I don't have to print sign scan and, and send back. Uh, you can, as I said, also edit the text as long as it's regular text and not just graphical text from inside a PDF. And you can even change the text, uh, which is very, very cool. Uh, PDF pen 5.5, uh, offers new page numbering, So uh, it will actually add page numbers to the PDF itself and you can tell it it does it automatically and you can tell it what page to start with and you pick the format that you want and whether you want it, you know, center, left, right, top, bottom, wherever you want. Uh, And and then bam, you just insert this and boom, you know, you've got your page numbers throughout your PDF, which can be really handy, especially if you're creating something that might be, you know, a a document that when printed, you need to make sure it stays in order uh, and that sort of thing. So PDF pen uh, is available at smilesoftware.com. You want to visit smilesoftware.com slash geek. Uh, and that will get you uh, to the special Mac geek cab page over there at smile for uh, PDF pen geek 11 G E E K one, one will get you 20% off of either PDF pen, which is 59.95, or PDF pen pro, which is ninety nine ninety five. There are free trials available for both, and you can get uh, you can get started at smilesoftware.com slash geek 
So, uh, so thank you very much to smile. We appreciate it. And, uh, really appreciate you, uh, sending out this coupon code to our listeners because that's really not something they do often. So if you've been thinking about PDF pen, uh, do it now because the, uh, the coupon code is good only through October one. So it expires October one. So good through September 30. All right, John, let's dive into the questions here and let's start with Mark. Mark has a question about Lion. He writes, I've noticed an odd issue with desktops in Mac OS X Lion. I'm an avid user of multiple desktops, first in uh, various favorite flavors of Linux, and then when they were implemented in Mac OS X. I use four desktops, and while I prefer the 2x2 two two layout previously used when it was called Spaces in Snow Leopard and before, I'm getting used to the four side-by-side -side layout used in uh, Mission Control in Lion. I find that I'm going to the three finger swipe to change windows. Whereas before I tended to navigate by moving directly from desktop to desktop. Since that now would take three swipes instead of one to move from desktop one to four, I've modified my behavior. But there are still times I use the three finger swipe to move between them. Lately, I've been noticing a problem. Occasionally my desktops will get out of order when I launch uh, expose. I'm attached or mission control. I'm attaching a screenshot, which he showed he has desktop one, then four, then three, then two. I've tried to move them around, but have yet to find a way to change the order. It seems to mostly come up when I am using parallels desktop, usually, which I run on desktop four. I've also noticed some odd behavior in parallels. When I launch a guest, it, it will sometimes appear on one of the other desktops. Uh, it's not a big deal, but I do use the desktops to organize my work environment. And it can be annoying to go to desktop two and find that it is now desktop three. Have you seen this issue? And more importantly, do you have an answer? Yes, we have seen this mark and yes, we have an answer. So uh, it's important a to remember that this is called mission control uh, that lets you do all of this uh, and mission control, of course, lets you do more than just these multiple desktops, but that's where it's all controlled. Uh, if you go into system preferences and choose mission control, there are three checkboxes at the top of this preference pane. The second one is automatically rearrange spaces based on most recent use. And that's exactly what's happening to you, Mark, is your spaces are being being rearranged as you choose them. And it's trying to keep them close so that you don't have to three finger swipe to get back and forth too much uh, between the, the stuff you've been using most recently. But you can uncheck that and then they will stay exactly where you started them off. So hopefully that uh, hopefully that's a help. Do you use uh, use multiple desktops or spaces like that, John? No, no. Now, I, you know, I don't, I'm starting to think maybe I want to, I, I think I like the idea of it. I have never been able to put it into practice in a way that makes me happy. Uh, I was inadvertently introduced to it in Lion because as you recall, one of my finger wags is, <clears throat> excuse me, they changed the uh, definition of, I believe, a three finger swipe in Lion to right. go to. Because the first time I tried it in a Lion, which normally I believe in, in Snow Leopard, it would, it would do a page back in, in things like safari that's right all of a sudden i did this and i yeah i think i landed in uh in mission control and i'm like oh i didn't do that before uh, uh, to their credit you can you can redefine the behavior as it was in snow leopard but no i'm a i'm a single space type of guy yeah for now yeah right 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 all right uh let's move on to adrian he writes i'm considering moving from aperture back to iphoto what is the best way to do this? 
Well, I'm going to make an assumption here. Now, I'm going to make an assumption because what I did is when I moved from Aperture to iPhoto, Wait, I imported. You moved back from Aperture to iPhoto? No, no, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 yeah. When I moved from iPhoto to Aperture, I'm sorry, I was reading what I see on my screen here. <laughs> when I moved from iPhoto to Aperture, what I did is imported my entire iPhoto library into Aperture, which I think is probably the best thing. I believe there is also an option where you can share the iPhoto library between Aperture and iPhoto, but I, I, I don't think that's the best way to go. So I basically pulled all the data in. It took quite a while. You know, it took several hours because I had about 90 gigs, you know, 10 years worth of photos. <clears throat> now, I don't think there's a nice way to do this in the reverse order. So my assumption here is that all the data was brought into Aperture from iPhoto, and now there's a desire to now go from Aperture back to iPhoto and to pull the stuff that has been done in Aperture into iPhoto. Okay. Yeah, I'll go with that assumption. Sure. And now what I didn't notice, now this is kind of a sneaky little thing. When you install Aperture, a lot of the iLife apps get an additional feature added to them. And I found one of them because at first I was like, well, you know, I don't believe, as far as I know, there is not a way to pull your Aperture library back into iPhoto, but there's something that I think is pretty close. So if you go into iPhoto and you go to the file menu, what you should notice after you install Aperture is there's going to be a choice called show Aperture library. Okay. Isn't that neat? And what you can do, and I verified this, is, and it'll show you. So the top level menu, when you bring up this uh, Aperture Photos Viewer, is a, at least the, the title of it, when I, I see it on my system here, on my MacBook Pro, the top level will be Aperture, and then you will see the subcategories, very similar. I think it's almost exactly the same as what you're going to see in Aperture in the uh, sidebar. And but that it'll show you, but that there's still an aperture at that at, at this point of this process, right? Correct. So what you can do then is so then and then it'll list projects, photos, faces, places, flagged albums. But it, it basically gives you the same view that you will see when you're in aperture. And so what you do is if you want to pull stuff that is now an aperture back into iPhoto, you would highlight it through the uh, this viewer, and then it'll pull it back into. And so I did get, this you, one, you, with you, one album. Highlight and drag it back in. Is that correct? Is that right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I had an album that I had created an aperture and iPhoto knew nothing about it. And when I highlighted it after going to this aperture viewer that is now, after you install aperture, is available in iPhoto, it pulled the library in or okay. the album or whatever or new the, stuff you've defined. So, so I don't see a way to do it in one fell swoop, but. You know, if you, if you click on multiple things, so as long as you're you're somewhat aware of the things that you added since then and you haven't gotten rid of your iPhoto library, or even if you did, I mean, if you brought everything in Aperture and then you started adding more things, uh, this, as far as I can see, is the best way to bring the stuff over within the was confines it, of the Apple software. Was it smart enough to import only the stuff that was new to iPhoto or did you have to select that manually? Well, well that's the thing. It doesn't... It, the I don't see it showing me what's new. It shows okay. me everything in the Aperture library. Sure. So you got to have some awareness. I, I mean, of course, you can see listed in iPhoto, assuming that you didn't get rid of your iPhoto library, which when I migrated over, I did. But assuming that you didn't erase your iPhoto library, then you should be able to see the differences between the sidebar in iPhoto and then this Aperture view and then bring over the stuff that's new. 
Fair enough. So, so they do add, uh, uh, and and this is a, a thing that that impresses me among, and, and even iWeb, for example. So iWeb. So once I added Aperture, then I got new menus that would let me pull in Aperture stuff in addition to iPhoto stuff into iWeb. So, so all the apps at some level give give themselves additional features. So that that's one of the nice things I think about the between the iLife and other Apple products is that they all, for the most part, talk to one another or make new options available when you install them. And I imagine the same is, is probably, you know, with Final Cut and iMovie and things like that is once you install one or the other, they, they, they at some level let you let one talk to the other or at that's least view what's in the other library. So that's, that's kind of nice. Cool. All right. Moving on to Derek. He said, uh, thanks so much. for." And we tried to uh, we talked about him in show 348. He said, thanks so much for taking time out to answer my question regarding mail. I'm glad mail is working for some and that the mobile me chat rip was being lazy. I tried your suggestions of switching to port 465, and I want to talk about that separately when we get to the end of this question. Even deleted it from the server and re-input the data uh, to success temporarily. I was able to send two test messages to mobile me and to my Gmail account. I thought I was going to be all right with the world. I went to send the, this solution to my boss who's having a similar issue. And uh, when I went to send the message, I was hit with the same problem. It would not send and I get the same error is my only other option to nuke and pave this account. And it might be uh, we've heard from some other people since uh, show 348 that, that this problem may, in fact, uh, be only solvable by blowing this account away, which really is strange. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, which doesn't make sense. I mean, clearly there's something out there that's being, you know, held on to. But but uh, but hmm. thus far, we haven't found it. But here's the thing, you know, mail actually it, it uh, for the most part obscures all of the technical nitty gritty uh, when it's communicating with the mail host, I mean, mail like and like Safari, when you're visiting a web page in Safari, what's happening behind the scenes is the Safari and the web server are talking to each other and passing all this data back and forth using a very defined format. Right. But you don't see that. And trust me, in most cases, you don't want to see that. It's a total mess and it would be horrible to have to read through mail will let you see this. Uh, if you go to window the window menu in mail and choose connection doctor and then click show detail. A little drawer will open from the connection doctor window and it will be empty until mail does something, be it check mail, send mail, or perhaps some other activity. Uh, then this starts filling up with tons and tons of, of data. Cause it's just the raw transmission logs back and forth. So what I would do is get a message queued up, ready to send, open this up by clicking on show detail in the connection doctor and then hit send. And you're going to see it do whatever it needs to do. Hopefully in there somewhere will be what triggered the error. And that might give you some indication as to what to do. Of course, since we're not seeing this problem here, we can't go through and, and pull up those error logs. But if you can send them to us, even if you don't understand them yourself, we might be able to might be able to see them. So that that's the only uh, that's the only thing I can I can think of. And uh, and I wanted to point out, we did mention uh, manually adding port 465 as the port to send through. Uh, it turns out that's old or in in uh, computing lingo that has been deprecated when sending mail out, even securely mail servers should now answer on port 587. So uh, 
some mail servers and Gmail is one of them. And mobile me, I believe mobile me does not actually support 465, or maybe it does, but, uh, but use 587, not 465. As it turns out, 587 is the better one to use. So the more, the, it's the more current standard, if you will. So, and speaking of standards, you've got something to add, right, John? Always, <laughs> almost always. Awesome. <laughs> so as, as, as you mentioned, Dave, the rules as to how to send and receive mail are, are, pretty well documented in that there's a standard set of rules and things that should happen. Though you're, you're shielded from this because, yes, you do not want to see this. But if you do, by going to the connection doctor and getting the detail, one thing you may want to do to prepare yourself for what you may see is to look at some of these documents that describe the mail protocols. And these are called RFCs. I believe requests for comment, and they're typically defined by the IETF or Internet Engineering Task Force which is the secret society of it. No, it's not secret. It's typically people that work throughout the industry and, you know, they've had people from Apple and Microsoft and, and other big companies that have an interest in defining a standard that everybody can use um, and not making it all proprietary. And so for mail, you're going to have three major standards. So of course, one or the older one is POP, Post Office Protocol for Picking Up Mail. And of course, I'll link to these. And that, that, I believe, the last one is RFC 1939. Uh, the one for sending mail is SMTP, and that's RFC 2821. And then the new kid on the block is IMAP for picking up mail also, and that's RFC 3501. But the thing is, these documents go into great detail about all of the commands that can be sent and all of the potential responses. So I got to prepare yourself for what you're going to see in this detail uh, section. Uh, depending on what you're trying to diagnose, whether it's sending or receiving, look through these documents and then the gobbledygook that you see will be less gobbledy. <laughs> yeah. Or it'll be all gobbledygook, including the RFCs, because they're they're uh, they're pretty geeky documents to read through. But but they do tell you exactly in excruciating detail what's going to happen. Yeah. The only other thing I want to mention is that if you want to see, for example, in Safari, you can also view this level of detail. And I would say the two ways to do that is if you go to Safari and Preferences, Advanced, Show Develop Menu. And in the Develop Menu, probably the thing that'll show you the, the, what's behind each web page is the Web Inspector. Or in the Window Menu, you can say Activity. And those are two places to look in the web browser if you want to see all the little itty bitty pieces that put together the beautiful web pages that you see. That's true. Yeah. It's still not, it's, that's not showing you the, the transmission logs. And again, you don't want those because with images, it's mostly just, just oh, encoded. encoded text. Yeah. Itty. These yeah. bring it to a level where I think it shows you the individual pieces, which yeah, is, which is helpful. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Off to Terry here. Uh, let's see where it's Terry. Right. I need to get to the right part in this email. Uh, being a consultant, I move around a lot, an average of a hundred miles a day and locally up to 300 miles. Sometimes I wear reading glasses. So I've not been too keen on using my iPhone for navigation. And since the iPad came out, it has been my GPS of choice. I was using both the Google map and MapQuest apps. So when your June show came to review Navigon, I drank it like a relief potion. I went on to purchase the Eastern version. Uh, the first two days, it did not recognize the address. On the third day, it sort of did, sending me nine miles from my final destination to the center of that town. Uh, I assume that it works well in large cities or that it is a work in progress. It was a little bit of an email trail here. And uh, he, he said, so 
I contacted Navigon to see what they said. And Navigon advised Terry to delete the app and then download it to his computer and resync it from the computer to his iPhone. After that, everything worked really well. And this brings me to the point I wanted to share about all this, which is that when iOS apps are acting funky, if you delete them from your device, either your iPad, iPhone touch, or whatever, iPod touch and iPhone, uh, it not only deletes the app, it deletes the data that's there with the app too. everything regarding that app is now gone there. It is gone without a trace. And when you install, if you ever reinstall the app, either downloading it direct or from your computer, it's going to have no data, none of your preferences, nothing. That's all gone. And that can be a really helpful thing, uh, especially sometimes I'll download an update to an app and then things will start crashing or what have you. Uh, by deleting the app and then re-downloading the update, it doesn't inherit any data from the old version, whereas the normal update process does. In most cases, inheriting that data, of course, can be a good thing. But uh, But as a troubleshooting step, Deleting from the device is actually a very thorough way of ensuring you don't have any crumbs from that application left. And then you can just put a fresh copy back out there. So, and I'm glad that worked for Terry. It's a good thing. It is a good thing. Cause you notice that uh, I noticed this when I was looking at, uh, and I think we talked about this uh, iPhone Explorer, or other programs that let you look at the file system yep. in varying levels of detail. And one thing I noticed that, yeah, it, it kind of, surprised me is that everything about an app is all contained within the app itself. I believe there's an applications directory on the phone and then each app. And not only is the app contained there and the code to run the app, but all the little pieces, which to me is in stark contrast. Yeah. <laughs> I've always wanted to use that. I, I finally got to use that phrase. I don't think <laughs> I've ever used it in the podcast in all these years uh, to the way Mac OS 10 is constructed, which as most of us know, uh, and, and we've given advice on this is that it's a, for the most part, it's a mess. The app is here. The preferences are here. The application support is here. You may have some extensions. You may have kernel extensions. It, it's just a mess. And that's why we have this thriving market for, for uninstall programs that try to be smart and try to figure out where all this garbage is, is distributed. Whereas Mac OS, and then maybe you want to, yeah, you know, mention a little bit about a, a follow-up to that, Dave, when, when we were talking about uh, the, the app stores, I guess the app store on the Mac is, is trying to fix this problem. I think it is. So Apple really internally, especially uh, is really uh, quite, they adore this concept of having the apps data bundled only with the app and, and sandboxed, if you will. And you can't touch any other apps data. And, and they talked a little bit about this at the WWDC keynote. Uh, and of course it caused great consternation and a big flurry of discussion from developers because uh, there's a lot of things that rely on apps talking outside their sandbox, but Apple is pushing to have it so that everything sold in the Mac app store is tied in and sandboxed like iOS but the problem with that is and, and and no file system or no access to the external file system. So any documents you have have to be stored with the app, which, again, gets really weird. And, and that's an important thing to note here. If you have documents inside an iOS app and you delete that app, those documents go away with it uh, with no extra warning that that's what's going to happen. Uh, so it's really a weird thing to think about implementing on the map 
Mac, but uh, but Apple's pushing for it, or at least was at WWDC. We'll we'll see how how that manifests. It could have been one of those things where Apple sort of floated the idea out there to see maybe where it's going to fit and where it's not. But uh, but anything that installs a kernel extension or anything that see that needs to see outside of its own little data store, which to me is kind of everything um, except maybe Safari. Right. But even with Safari, I still sometimes want to open stuff from my uh, like if I want to upload a file or something, I want to upload it from my my documents folder. Well, you know, if I can only see inside the sandbox, that's not going to really work. So it'd be interesting to see how it how it comes to fruition. Anything else on that, John? Nope. All right. Second sponsor for this show is Audio Engine at AudioEngineUSA.com. I love to talk about these speakers because they're fantastic, and they do. Audio Engine makes speakers. They make some other things, too, but what I want to talk about is these A2 speakers that they have, which are desktop speakers built to be used with your computer. Huge sound. Uh, and they're And they're not huge speakers. Uh, the speaker themselves is uh, six inches high and uh, four inches wide and maybe another five inches deep. Uh, there's two speakers uh, or two enclosures, each of which has two speakers inside it, a low end and a high end. And it's got a little base port on the bottom. And uh, I've got the A2s back in my office because, of course, we've been using that Sonos thing I mentioned like in show 350 at the house. So now I get to use these A2s all day in the office with my computer, which I totally love. The sound is warm. It's rich. I've got them plugged into the new iMac and, uh, and it just sounds great. Uh, really these things are engineered to, they sound good with anything. Uh, but, uh, but they've been engineered to sort of, uh, uh, account for the odd little changes and things that happen with MP3 sounds. So, uh, so if you're not using MP3s, they sound great with even just raw CDs, but, uh, but they do make MP3s sound just a little bit better, which is fantastic. AudioEngineUSA.com. And if you use the coupon code MGG10, you get 10% off. These A2s are $199, so you can get them for 180 bucks, and you can return them within 30 days and get all your money back if, uh, if for whatever reason you don't like them. So AudioEngineUSA.com. You know, John, I, it, during the spot there, I sent a, mentioned my new iMac and uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I meant to do it. You know, our schedule, as I mentioned, has been all screwed up. Right. But this thing, your so, new iMac. Yeah. That, so I really your haven't new talked 27 about 27 inch iMac with eight cores. Well, so it's, it's, or you told me a little bit about it, but, but I believe you have eight, essentially eight cores, right? Well, it's, so I got the 27 inch iMac. Uh, with the core i7 processor, which is four right. actual cores, but it allows for hyper threading, which depending on how the app is written for multi-threading, uh, it can take advantage of what appear to be eight virtual threads running simultaneously. Uh, okay. So, so apps like iStat menu will show eight, eight cores. Okay. That's right. Okay. Yep. And uh, man is, and, and I got it with, the 256 gig SSD and well, it's actually not an SSD 256 gig flash storage uh, because it's not an SSD because I also mm. got it with a one terabyte hard drive inside. So there's actually two storage units inside. One is just flash chips. The other is this hard drive. Uh, so as far as the speed of the processors goes, this thing screams. Uh, 
typically and, and handbrake to me is the best way for anyone to really measure speed. This thing goes, you know, it used to be on my, on my core two duo, you know, 2.4 gigahertz, whatever it is, core two duo iMac uh, that we have at the house. A, a two hour movie took approximately two hours and 20 minutes to convert to, uh, you know, to rip uh, down to what I would want to watch on like the TiVo or an Apple TV or anything like that. On the iMac, it's uh, eh, about 22 minutes is the average. And it, and it uses all eight threads simultaneously, everything at a hundred percent. And uh, which is just cool to see. And the cool part is I can be using the computer and not notice it being any slower than it is uh, when it's running, when everything's running at idle in the background, which is awesome. Now it came with these two uh, storage units, right? The one terabyte drive came completely empty, totally. I mean, formatted, but otherwise nothing on it. Uh, Whereas the, 256 gig SSD or flash storage unit had the operating system and apps and it's the main drive, which is interesting because Apple in the, uh, in the store, when you're selecting it, it says something to the effect of if you, if you choose this extra thing, you can store your music and photos and, and uh, documents if you want on this, you know, other drive, but they give you no real indication as to how you might go about doing that, which is, potentially frustrating for uh, for a, a, a novice user uh, or even an intermediate user if it's just not clear. So I did. I moved my my iTunes library is there. My iPhoto library I moved there. I, I did that with um, with iPhoto library manager because I wanted to bring it from my old computer over. But um, but yeah, it, it was a little, you know, a little odd. It, it's like moving data anywhere on the Mac. It's just not part of the the. It's doable, but it's not apparent necessarily how to do that. Uh, in iTunes, I, I went in and chose, uh, if you go into iTunes Advanced, iTunes Preferences Advanced, you can change the iTunes Media Folder location. And once you change it, then uh, you, get to, you have to go to the File menu, go to Library, Organize Library, and choose Consolidate Media Files, and that will copy everything from where it was to where it is. In my case, I copied my media folder from the other computer over. So I did not have to do this consolidate step, but, um, but I just pointed it at that and restarted iTunes and then everything was fine, but it's a, it's a fast machine. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely, definitely a lot of fun. And the 27 inch screen is, uh, is plenty for me. I was using a 23 plus my 15 inch MacBook pro screen before. And I worried not having the dual screens, how that would be, but, for the last two and a half weeks or whatever it's been, it's been totally fine. Now I have done something interesting though, John, and I don't think I've told you this. Maybe I have, uh, I set up my computer in a way that I am not sitting at my desk all day anymore. Uh, in fact, for the podcast today is the first time I've sat down all day. Uh, now my computer, it's currently jury rigged cause I wanted to see how this would work. Uh, so I've got some, you know, platforms and such on a, a desk in the corner of my office where I can stand and work at my computer. And I love it. It's awesome being able to stand up and not being just chained to a chair. Uh, it, it, and so I'm, I'm definitely going to I'm starting to research standing desks. Uh, the reason I waited was a I wanted to see if it would work and b I wanted to see if I wanted something that could raise and lower. And there are some desks out there. Uh, companies like Anthro and, and, and several others make desks that go up and down. And I wanted to see if I felt like I needed that. And I don't, I'm totally fine standing all day. So 
Uh, I just need to find a way to, to set up the computer so that it's up high. And more importantly, the keyboard is up high. So this will be, it'll be an interesting little thing and I'll keep everybody posted as we, as we go through this. So any other questions, John? No. Okay. You sure about that? I'm, I'm still happy with my new toy. That's right. All right. Uh, Graham writes, I've just upgraded to Lion on my 15-inch MacBook Pro and all seems to be okay. The upgrade was a normal one on top of Leopard. I then upgraded my 24-inch iMac 2007 with a nuke and pave and a clean install, and I did a backup before uh, using Carbon Copy Cloner and Time Machine. I wiped my hard drive and then did an install on a blank drive. When I was installing, I was asked more questions than on my MacBook Pro and had to fill in some details, including my Apple ID. I think the Apple ID has caused a little hiccup. My home folder is now named as the first part of my Apple ID. I have only one Ooh. user on this Mac. Uh, I went and clicked the uh, right click. I went into system preferences, users and groups, and I right clicked on my user and chose uh, advanced. And I see a screen that in theory allows me to change my home directory. There's a big warning on there. So I left well alone and that's why I'm emailing you. Okay. So uh, this is very interesting because the, uh, the you know, the, if the Apple ID is uh, username at uh, comcast.net, then the home folder was set to username and that might be different because in this case, it looks like maybe it's his wife's uh, um, at his Apple ID. He and his wife might share an Apple ID perhaps or something. Uh, and so he's got this home folder that's named uh, not after his full name that he put in, which is typically how it was done in the past. So uh, there might be a good reason to need to change this, even though it's as Apple says, a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, and you can change it in that same location, but you have to be very careful. First, uh, you need to log out of the account you wish to change and log in as a separate user with admin rights. That might mean creating this separate user before you log out. Make sure when you create this user, you say that this al allow this user to administer my computer. Then not using fast user switching, but log out of the account you want to change. You do not want that account active uh, and then log in using your test user. Go into the terminal and you're going to and you could or you could do this in the finder uh, and you're going to rename uh, in the users folder uh, the folder name of your user uh, to whatever from whatever it is to whatever you want it to be. Then back into system preferences and you're going to right click on the details for that user and change the name to what you set it to. Changing it in there does not create any new folders it just says, use this folder as my home directory. It has to already exist at this point. And that's why you need to make the name change in the finder first before you go and change it in the preference pane. Once you change it in the preference pane, you should be good to go. And, uh, and in fact, we gave these instructions to Graham and, 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 uh, it confirmed, in fact, he was good to go. So, uh, so then you can log out and log back in as your main user and it's going to point, uh, everything and it should just work fine. You might have a couple things say, hey, is this in a new location? You just say, yep, and you're good to go. Right, John? Huh. Huh. 
Learn something new every day? I guess because I'm looking at the advanced options and it's one of the few dialogues I've seen that has warning in red letters. Yeah. (laughs) But the one thing I noticed is that account name, home directory, and then they have aliases, which in this case is my Mac.com account. Right. I use the same name for all of them. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Which is why I've never run into this. It never occurred to me that it... Yeah, apparently the migration utility uh, makes certain assumptions that may. Well, this wasn't the migration the, utility. This was the. Or I'm sorry, but but he said he entered utility. the name of. But uh, I'm sorry, but but apparently it it derives some information from the uh, mobile me account. Yes. Well, the, that sounds no, to me like that may have happened. It, it's um, it not necessarily your mobile me account. It's your Apple ID or your Apple ID. Okay. Right. Right, which can be any email address. It does not. Okay, have which to in be my a, case is my mobile. Okay, right, right yeah. Right. To clarify, okay. Now it is important to note, you know, this advanced options screen, which again you get to by right clicking on the user in the yeah. accounts preference pane after authenticating. After after a good point because I just noticed that yep. I right clicked on it and nothing happened, and then you'll notice in a lot of dialogues that are somewhat dangerous, you'll see a little lock in the lower left hand corner, and you click on the lock, and you have to give an admin password. Right. Then I was able to right click. Yes. Now there there are. Uh, many pieces of information out here and it depends on which operating system you're using, what you will have, I think. Uh, but, uh, you will have a user ID, a group, an account name, a login shell, home directory, UUID and aliases as John pointed out. I would recommend changing only two things here, home directory and only using the steps we just, just described and certainly not doing it willy nilly. Make sure you have a good reason to do this. Uh, and then login shell. If you know and or care what uh, the things are, there's a little drop down and it lets you choose from, uh, I guess, about six different pre-installed login shells. And that's only for when you're at the terminal. Uh, You can change that. Do not change the account name. Enticing as that might be, changing your short username Mm. is a difficult process. There actually is an article out there. I think it was an old Mac OS X Hints article that talks about what steps you need to go through to successfully change your account name here but uh but you don't want to monkey with this stuff despite the fact that it will totally let you uh as soon as you change it you could basically lock yourself out of your machine so be really really careful here home directory login shell don't touch anything else and you should be happy that's my that's my warning of the day i'm with you brother all right that's good um where are we on time here john Oh, we're still yeah, cooking. 37. Yeah, we're good. Um, all right. Let's talk about, let's talk about, we're on the line. Let's talk about spotlight <sighs> and we'll let Joel, we'll let Joel talk about his tale of woe. We don't have a solution for Joel. Maybe one of you does. I doubt it uh, because I think it's just the way lion works, but uh, we, it will lead us into some very interesting uh, things that I learned today while trying to find an answer for Joel. Hey, Mac Geek Gab guys, this is Joel from Loveland. I wanted to thank you again for the PDF uh, reduce file size hint from a couple weeks ago. That's awesome. I've been using it regularly, and I really appreciate that. I have a question about Spotlight in Lion. I have typed in uh, DIS, looking for disk utility. It's showing me Daisy Disk which is a great application, but not what I'm looking for. And I use uh, Disk Utility on a regular basis and not Daisy Disk. 
Um, disk utility doesn't show up until I have typed in disk space u. It's it's showing up, but it's just it's not letting me select it uh, as the default as the highlighted uh, application. And uh, there are a couple of other things that I opened that do the same kind of thing. I thought that previous uh, OS X versions had uh, learned what it was that I wanted to open. And uh, Lion is not, has not learned in a month. And I just wanted to know if you had any ideas of what you might do about that. This is where you cut me off. All right. So you are something else they broke in Lion. I, I agree. Nice. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Here's the thing, right? Because uh, Joel's right in in Snow Leopard and before. If I would go to Spotlight and type DI, right, uh, it will show mm-hmm. me a bunch of applications, but there will be a top hit. And for me, right now, that top hit is Disk Utility on this computer, and this is my Snow Leopard computer. If I go down to Dictionary and choose Dictionary and let it launch. And then I go back up and clear out the spotlight uh, entry pane and type DI again. Now dictionary is the top hit because it remembers that that's what I used and it associates that with my search makes it really easy to launch applications and and it makes this process really intuitive. In fact, you don't notice that it's, I didn't notice that it was doing it until I got lion and realized it was not. And I'm constantly having to move around in this list. Uh, Lion seems to lock into whatever it locks into and maybe it's alphabetical order, which I think it is. Uh, and then that's it. There's no, at least not from what I could find, uh, there doesn't seem to be any way to change it. Uh, if one of you knows how to change it, please speak up and let us know. However, uh, there was something cool that I found, uh, when searching to see if there was an answer here. And that is, that you can actually get pretty tricky uh, and pretty complex with spotlight searches. So you can use uh, some logical operators there. You can say, uh, you know, I could, I could look for D I and then type a space and then type not. And then I could write dictionary. So now it's going to find everything with a D I that's not dictionary. And uh, and so now my applications list is there and it's all the same as it was before, with the exception of, of course, dictionary is missing. And that can be pretty cool. You can also use and or you can use or. So uh, so there's there's definitely some cool things that can be done up there. And uh, I was happy to stumble on this. I don't know when I'll use it. I don't know how I'll use it, but I know I'll use it because that's the kind of geek I am. Did you know about, about any of this, John? I guess not. No, I think subconscious, you know, I think I just dealt with it by typing in a few more letters until I found what yeah. I wanted because I typically yeah. use spotlight for a quick and dirty app launcher. Right. And I think what happened is, yeah, the first time I typed D I and it didn't appear, I think if I typed D I S, then it would come up. Whereas, yeah, as you said, when I tried it on my snow leopard machine, doing a D I would bring up this utility. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, not sure if they changed it for the better, but they, they certainly did change the behavior. I don't know if rebuilding. No, I, I don't think rebuilding it, but fix it. I, I no, actually it really didn't. It, no. I, I believe installing line rebuilds it anyways. Right. Yeah. I, and I, I believe I've, it did. I've rebuilt my spotlight index many times um, to try and solve other issues in line. And mm-hmm. it, it didn't make any lick of difference with this. And the fact and, that, that the three of us, you, me, and Joel, are, are all seeing this. I mean, I think it means that it's just the way it is in line. 
Mm. Hopefully they'll change it. Or at least give us an option to change it. So anyway, if if you know how to change it, maybe there is some uh, some little you know defaults command we can write to the terminal to uh, to make this happen. Let us know, and the way you let us know is feedback at MacKeyCab.com. <laughs> you blew it again. I did. It's feedback at MacKeyCab.com. No, no, feedback at MacKeyCab.com. We'll get your email straight <laughs> to John or I. Actually, it will get it to both John and I, and it yeah. really is the best way to do it. Uh, it allows you, to, you can send, obviously, text there. You can send pictures, screenshots, movies. Uh, you can send your audio comments, uh, which you could record on your iPhone using the little voice memo app and then beam them off to us. And uh, And we really, really... Uh, appreciate all the the feedback and questions and all that good stuff. If you want to call in, you can do that though. And that's at 206-666-GEEK, which is four, three, three, five. That's right. And uh, I will ask one thing. uh, If you have multiple questions, send them in separately. Uh, We, we have a lot to do when we were prepping the show, and chopping up audio files when there's like six different questions in them. Uh, I, you know, if the questions are related, fine, leave them together. But if you've actually got, you know, two or three different, totally separate things to address, send them to us separately. It makes it really easy for us to piecemeal them out and, and, uh, and put them where we need to in the show, or maybe even defer one to one show and save one for here or whatever. So that's that. You can Skype us to Mac geek gab and you can find us on Twitter uh, Mac geek gab is the show. John F. Braun is him. Pilot Pete's the guy that's not here today. I'm Dave Hamilton. And of course, Mac observer is the, uh, overall feed for everything to do over there at TMO. All the articles you get from TMO and Facebook. We like Facebook, which, uh, do we, we do. we do. Sure. Why not? Yeah. As long as it doesn't give our information. Uh, well, no, we, we want that. That's right. Yeah. For the show. We want that. That's right. No, I, I, I just think it's funny because their uh, privacy policy always seems to to kind of very fluid, ebb and flow. Yes. <laughs> but yes, Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. That's right. Blog World Expo is November 3rd through 5th. Uh, John and I will be there. Uh, you will? I, I, oh, I, oh, no, okay. actually, we won't. No, you won't. I think I'm going. I'm speaking. You're not speaking, are you? I don't believe so. Okay. All right. So that's not, I was going to say that's a good place to find John and I, but, uh, but uh, I think it's just going to be me. So we'll talk more about that at the end of the show. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, where are we here? Let's move to Ben. I think that's a good one to go through. And then maybe we'll jump to some cool stuff. Ah, found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben, all, right. all right. So Ben writes, with iDisk going away, I need to know a good replacement web dev service. I use iDisk for my iBank and OmniFocus data files. Is it easy to set up on my own website uh, using an Apache server? Okay. Uh, there is a way to set up web dev on your, uh, on your Mac. Um, it's a fairly geeky solution and we can certainly link to an article that, that explains how to do it all, but there are services out there that do web dev. Uh, unfortunately our favorite file syncing services like Dropbox and SugarSync don't seem to support web dev, but box.net does. Uh, and you can access that at box.net slash DAV. So 
check out box.net that that might uh, that might do it now the, the question, what is web dev <laughs> I, I, so i want you to answer it and i'm looking to you for this answer john because my my thought was uh as i got his question i'm like well why not just use dropbox what's the benefit of using web dev over some mm. other you know solution that just takes the contents of one of your folders and syncs it anyway so the go. deal is web dev is now remember we we talked about standards before and web dev is yet another standards-based implementation. And what WebDev does specifically is, well, it stands for Web-Based Distributed, distributed Authoring and Versioning, which really doesn't tell you a lot. But when you boil it down, what it basically lets you do is access a virtual disk using HTTP, which is the same protocol that your web browser uses. Except here, instead of connecting to a web server and seeing a web page, you connect to a virtual disk in the cloud basically so this is cloud before cloud got all cool right <laughs> um and it and the thing is all major operating systems support this so you and, and for example iDisk is a web dev uh implementation though iDisk i think is going to go bye-bye soon right but uh but there are a number of people that offer this like you said i think box.net dave is yep. is a service and the nice thing is that whether you're on Mac OS 10 or Windows or Linux or whatever, uh, there's probably a web dev client available or a way for you to access a web dev volume. And it appears on your desktop just like any other volume. So that's the nice thing about it because a lot of these other services are, for the most part, proprietary in that you need their client software, whether it be SugarSync or Dropbox or a lot of these other guys. If you don't have their software, uh, you're not going to get to them. Uh, and uh, probably one of the better resources, I'll link to it, but it's a webdev.org is a website that talks all about web dev. And I think it's a good thing because it's a, you know, it's a really clever way. And then the nice thing about it is that because it's using HTTP over port 80, or I guess 443, if you want it secure, uh, you don't have to do the hokey pokey with your firewall to get to it. Is that if your firewall allows access to a web server, it should allow access to a web dev uh, disk as well. Cool. So I think that's what it's all about. And then I found a service. And I don't know. It, it, it sounds kind of hokey, Dave, but uh, the, the, somebody does offer a service that supposedly maps or lets you access your Dropbox as a web dev service. But I think it's a layer above it. Did you find? Yeah. This as well? Yeah. Drop dev or dev drop or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, they it, it is. It's a it's an interim layer. It's not drop offered. dev drop dev dot com. It's a pay service. I think they have a free trial. Uh, but you know, if, if you want to, if you want to get your Dropbox through web dev, uh, and for whatever reason you don't want to use, uh, the Dropbox client, then, you know, what does it say? Five bucks a month. So, yeah. you know, if that's important to you, then sure. I, I'd be, I'd be leery of that o only because it's an, it's yeah. a, it's a layer in between Dropbox is not built to be accessed that way. So they're doing some translation on the, on the fly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. It, it just scares me, but maybe it works. I don't know. Maybe they just, but you know, where, where's your data being kept? Are they just keeping a local copy of your Dropbox there and you access that via web dev and whatever changes are made to that get pushed up and back to your Dropbox. Yeah. I imagine that's what they're doing. Oh, yeah. well, Hey for kicks. Uh, they got a free trial. Yeah. Maybe I'll give it a whirl. Yeah. So see what it, see what it looks like. Cool. Um, all right, let's do, uh, let's do Fred 
You know, you know what? Let's get into cool stuff. Found. We got a bunch of stuff there. You've got some stuff to add. And, uh, and so that's where we're going with this. And we will start as we always do, or as we often do with, uh, with Jeff. And, uh, well, there's two different Jeffs that send in a ton of stuff for cool stuff found. So this is, uh, this is one of, one of the Jeffs, uh, Jeff says, I just, uh, listening to Mac geek of three when John was talking about the music ID app Shazam, there's another app called SoundHound, which is free and SoundHound infinity, which is not free, but with unlimited searches, but also listens to a portion of a song and will identify it. After using Shazam and SoundHound, both free versions, I found that SoundHound was able to identify more songs than Shazam, but that was a while ago. So Shazam might have gotten better. I also like SoundHound's UI better. Uh, there's also an iOS app called Into Now that will listen to television audio and will identify the show and the episode, which is some pretty neat technology and programming behind those apps. We like that. That's cool stuff. I like it. All right. Uh, we'll do a couple here from 348, John, and then uh, then we'll bounce around. Uh, Ian writes, I was just listening to 348 and had a bit of feedback. Number one, in the Finder, there are three different types of info boxes. There's the Get Info, which is Command-I. There is Get Summary Info, which is Command-Control-I. And there's the Inspector, Command-Alt-I. Uh, he says, uh, and, and uh, let's see. Uh, did I, did I, did I screw this up? Yeah. No. So that's it. So there's those three. Yeah, that's it. All right. And I thought I had another cool one just from that. Uh, where, where is it? I, I had something cool, John, and I'm trying to find it, but I can't find it on here. Oh, Ed, you know what? We're going to use, we're going to, we're going to play Ed's comment because it's totally related here. I knew I had something else related to this. And uh, so, Ed, go. Hey, Dave and John, this is Ed from L.A. I've got a, an addendum to your tip from show 348 on the file inspector. Um, a lot of times they'll take a file full of, uh, a folder full of files, and I want to archive them to a CD. Well, it's kind of convenient if I select a file and I do the show inspector, and then I can hold the shift key down and hit the down arrow, and it selects multiple files. The inspector actually shows the aggregate uh, disk space that it takes up. So that way I can keep selecting files until I get to the point where it's equal to the file uh, space on a CD. Now it also gives you the capability to, you can hold the command key down. So, so for example, if you select too many files and you're over the CD size, you hit the up arrow and it deselects uh, the last file you selected making it less than, and you can hold the command key down and the shift key and select a smaller file farther down in the list uh, just to maximize the amount of files you can get on the CD. Uh, just thought I'd throw that tip at you, and here's where you cut me off. That which is awesome, because I've done that where it drives me crazy trying to figure out, oh, how much space is this going to take up? And I never thought about using the file inspector for that, but of course it works brilliantly. So... Cool stuff. One last one from 348, John. Are you still yes. with John? Okay. All right. Good. I'm with you. I'm All with right, you. Good, I'm good, with good, you. good, good, good. Uh, I'm just getting ready for my cool stuff. Okay. Uh, you know, why can't I? F oh, you know why I can't find that? Because it's not there. Uh, mm. So we'll share this other tip from 348. 
uh, which is from Glenn. Glenn says last week you had a listener state that your that his wife's Mac backed up locally, and then he wanted to move those backups to a drive off the airport extreme. You suggested avoiding the hassle of moving the current set of backups to a sparse bundle and simply starting the backups over again wirelessly. However, there is a better way to do this so as to make the process of rebacking up faster. Start the initial time machine backup wirelessly. This will create a fresh sparse bundle on the disk. After a few moments, data will begin to transfer from the Mac to the backup as evidenced by the beginning of the progress bar. At this point, stop the backup by clicking the tiny X either in the time machine preferences or in the progress bar dialog that appears in the finder. It's very important that you wait until data has begun transferring and not interrupt the process too early or the sparse bundle will not be accepted later. Using airport utilities, disconnect all users, disconnect the external hard drive, then physically, dis- then physically con- disconnect the drive from the airport extreme and move it to a USB port on your Mac. Finally, reselect the USB drive in Time Machine's select disk box and resume the initial backup. As you indicated in your comments, Time Machine will happily resume backups to a sparse, fund- sparse bundle, even via USB. Naturally, this may still take several hours even via USB, but at least it's not the several days it might take to backup over wireless. Then, of course, once the initial backup's complete, you eject the hard drive, plug it back into your Airport Extreme, and again in Time Machine, use Select Disk to point back to it over there, and all should be well. So thank you, Glenn, for, uh, and uh, sorry, yeah, that was Glenn. And Glenn says he's done that many times and avoided uh, initial long backups because he's done them directly as opposed to wirelessly which is awesome. So you just got to start it while it's connected to the airport extreme and then you can move it around and it works just fine, which is an awesome little workaround. So thank you very much, Glenn. All right, Mr. Braun, what do you got? What I got. So I just uh, got a toy back. So um, this is a review that's, that's being stretched out a bit here, but for good reason, I think. So it's, uh, it's uh uh, the SSD that I, I looked at and then sent back to this company, but then Lion came out. And the reason that I wanted to get it back is because, uh, and this is a, uh, uh, who is it? Is it Sam? Uh, is it Samsung? Uh, but it's an SSD here. Now, okay. let, let, let me dig it up here. A 470 series SSD. Yes, Samsung. Okay. So basically, I got it in. I did some tests and, and I noticed some uh, some performance issues. Uh, which I thought was because trim support was not in Snow Leopard, which it's not. Now, what is trim? And in a nutshell, what trim is, is a way for an operating system to help an SSD clean up uh, a race space so that if the OS comes back to it, it can write faster. Because the problem is right now, the way it works is that if, if, if it's dirty and I guess that's the best way to describe it. What happens is rather than writing to blank space, what happens is you do a read, a race, and a write. And so you can take a big performance hit. And I noticed this. But then... Um, so this is, I noticed, and, and just to be clear, this read, erase, write issue is only an issue on SSDs. So the idea is if a right. piece of space has been marked as free, what you want to do is at some point, you want to actually make it empty before you need to write to it Otherwise, you've got to go through this big rigmarole and it slows things down. Right. Now, some SSDs will do this in the background and you don't need trim, but trim is the way that an operating system, I believe Windows 7 supports this. But up until Lion, it was not supported. Now, here's so that's the good news is Lion supports it. Here's the bad news. 
So I got this SSD back. I put it in uh, in my MacBook Pro with with the, that has Lion on it, and I fired up a uh, System Profiler and I looked at my SATA bus, and it said, "Up, oh, you got a, a solid state drive trim." No, I'm like, what? Well, here's the problem. At least for now, Lion only supports trim on Apple SSDs. So there are two solutions here, and I'm going to link to both of them. So one. Uh, the, which seems kind of iffy, but it worked on my system here is something called trim enabler for Mac. And I got version 1.2. Allegedly what this does, I'm still trying to figure it out, but it, apparently it, re- it replaces a kernel extension with a patched kernel extension. And, and I think, and, and then I found another solution where the guy actually tells you how to modify a kernel extension. But in either case, what you're basically doing is modifying a kernel extension and eliminating the search for the string Apple space SSD, which is right now how the, how Lion knows that it's an Apple SSD and that it can enable trim support. So, and basically I ran this, restarted my system, looked in system profiler and trim was enabled on this SSD now, which the SSD supports it. So it's, I thought it was cool because, uh, and, and I'm not sure why Apple, <laughs> Apple is not enabling it for any drive that supports it. What they should do is say, Hey drive, you support trim and the drive should say yes or no. And if it does, then you enable it. So I'm not sure why they're holding back on that. Apple's yeah. always been weird about that stuff. There was some issue with an old SCSI drive and sleeping. And I actually had to, fi- I figured out a way to, update the firmware on a SCSI drive that shouldn't have been updatable from a Mac in order to get it to do this. It's a big, it's, it's not surprising, but you know, it's Apple's thing. They, they make their stuff work the way they build it to work and they don't care all that much about third party stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And they probably should. So I'm doing this. So in my tests, I'm basically going to enable trim and and it only really affects write performance as, as I mentioned. Yeah. But Uh, let me tell you, it can make a huge difference if you start to fill up your drive. Uh, Well, yeah, that's the thing. Once, once you go through an entire cycle of writing to all of the cells on, on the SSD and then you start reusing them. Yeah. Having trim or not having trim. And I've seen some of the benchmarks, uh, I don't know if it's night and day, but you, you certainly see degradation because the drive, uh, like we mentioned, has to do this extra work and, and could actually wear it out. And the yep. other point is, yeah, some drives will do this in the background without trim support, but it, I, I don't think it can hurt. Right. Yeah, I think I think both Crucial and OWC, I know OWC and I'm pretty sure Crucial, uh, the SSDs that they have do effectively the same t- they they solve the same problem as you said john in the background in the drive itself but they're not doing it in concert with the os they're just kind of doing it on their own uh but but effectively i think it it results in the same the same thing in that you're not uh you're you're doing your level best to avoid the performance degradation that you would otherwise get from an ssd and that's what Over I got. Time. And, and it is, it, you know, it is nice again, having an SSD in the MacBook pro. Oh, dude. It's the I'm, only way um, to go. I don't know. Well, I told you, you know, I upgraded my mechanical hard drive right. and, and I saw a jump there. It, it's not night and day, but it's certainly, I mean, for certain tasks, I mean, startup is, is, you know, probably in half the time, uh, loading big files. Like when I run VMware or something, I mean, yeah. it loads the, uh, the virtual disc quicker. Uh, so for, for tasks where, well, for a lot of things, yeah. It it's uh I'm still not quite ready just because of the 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 space. If right. I could get a 512 gig like I have I I'm sorry, uh, a 512 gig 
uh, SSD for the same price that I could get the mechanical drive that I got, then I do it in a heartbeat. Right, I may want to look at, well, I think I may want to look at, is it a, the, the, there's one hybrid drive out there, which seems to be a nice balance between the two and that you get the capacity yeah. uh, that I'd like, but you get, you get near, you get better performance than a rotational hard drive and not quite as good as an SSD, but it's kind of in between the uh, momentous XT. I think it is. Yeah. I thought you were looking at one of those. I thought you had one of those. No, it's, it's on my list of, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I got such a pile of stuff. <laughs> go through dave as you do probably as I, well. oh yeah of course yeah you got to pick the things that uh that appeal to you that's right um all right we got to find one other thing here uh you know token lock okay so this is this is actually kind of cool uh david wrote in and uh he actually told us about something he told us about two things he says uh i was wondering if my two favorite mac geeks could help me out on the ah you know what we'll skip it uh, we'll just skip to the to the real deal. Uh, he told us about this thing called Token Lock, and what it does is it uses either USB or Bluetooth to lock your Mac. Uh, so what you can get is you can get a USB token uh, that you plug into your Mac, and when you plug it in uh, in concert with this Token Lock software, it unlocks. It wakes up and unlocks your Mac, and when you unplug it. It locks your Mac and, and uh, that's the end of that uh, until you come back. You can do the same thing, though, using the same software with Bluetooth and your iPhone. So or really any uh, device that you can pair with your Mac with Bluetooth. And uh, apparently in Lion, there's even a Bluetooth proximity thing uh, that the that applications have access to so you can you can set it to uh to only happen when you're when you're close to your mac and and then as you move away it it uh it does a scan and locks your mac or you can have it uh, you know there's other things token lock i believe is just for locking your mac there is another thing that david told us about uh called proximity or redux computing dash proximity which is a google code project and we'll put both of these up uh in the uh in the show notes but uh but it does the same sort of thing and then lets you do things like locking the screen or muting your volume or, uh, you know, various other things. So you can kind of run some scripts with it, but it's pretty cool to think about doing this with Bluetooth. So, uh, so we'll take a look at both of these things. The, the, the latter, this Redux computing proximity is a Google code project and it is free. Token lock is not free. It is available, I believe on the Mac app store. And uh, and I'll pull up a price on that while we're talking here. Did you check this out yet, John? I just I just read about it this morning. I haven't had a chance no. to check it out. Okay, it's three bucks, two ninety nine no. from the Mac App Store. The reason this is good to just do a mini security course here. So a lot of people acknowledge that there are three parts to having a good security system, and the three parts are what you know, what you have, and what you are. What right. you know, of course, is something like a password. What you have is what we're talking about here, which is a token. So it's something you physically got to have in your possession to get into something and then, and what you are is the other piece, which you, we haven't seen in a lot of systems that you see it in the movies all the time. And what you are is biometrics, whether it be a retina scan or a fingerprint or something like that. So having more is better. So this gives you a piece that is normally not part of, uh, part of Mac OS 10. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, and I think John, I think that's, uh, that's where we look to our friends in the band and see if we can't, uh, see if we can't coax them into playing us out. There we go. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, as I said, uh, I believe I'll be at Blog World Expo. Uh, in, in, in fact, I'm, I'm almost certain I'll be there. I just got to deal with a little schedule conflict. Uh, if you want to go, uh, you can get 20% off your registration using Observer VIP as your code. Uh, and an Expo Pass, the floor-only pass, you can actually get for half price using Observer 5.0 for 50% off. So that's all Blog World Expo, November 3rd through 5th. We would like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast for converting this show to AAC for us and for you. That's what puts all the chapters in. Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebones Software, PDF Pen from Smile, using that coupon code of uh, Geek11. And, of course, Gazelle uh, at gazelle.com, all through Backbeat Media. You got anything to add here, John, as we're, as we're rolling out of... Uh... Did you say Geek 1-1? Yeah, did I get that wrong? Oh, no. I guess that's, that's right. Is that right? You got the code. I, I don't know. know. I haven't tried it. <laughs> yeah, Geek 1-1 is the code. Okay. Yeah, or smilesoftware.com slash geek. Yes. Yes. Uh, but it's always good to, to catch me because, you know, sometimes, uh, I don't know, sometimes I, uh, I might get it wrong. And that would be really bad. So have a good week. We'll be back on Monday the 12th. I believe that's right. Send in your tips, feedback at MacGeekCap.com. Send in your questions. Most of all, don't get caught. <laughs>